Football is back, and BetMGM is inviting new customers to join the huddle and enjoy the action like never before. Sign up today using bonus code CAPITAL, and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. You'll also have instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, player props, and boosted odds specials. Just download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CAPITAL and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. The BetMGM app is the perfect way to experience the excitement of wagering on live sports. Now in more markets than ever. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Hello and welcome to episode 89 of En Route. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. This is a rewind episode and it's with Jeff Mitchell, who is the senior pastor of Lindenwood Christian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. This interview is from July of 2021 and we talk about the future of mainline Protestantism, something that is, of course, one of the major themes of this podcast. Lindenwood is a congregation in a Christian church, Disciples of Christ. That happens to actually be my, also my home denomination. And it's doing something that is unfortunately not so common among congregations throughout the spectrum these days. It's growing. So back then we had a great talk of um, talking about the future of mainline Protestantism. And so I wanted to dust it off and um, share it with people, especially if they have not heard it before. Also, to let you know that um, kind of when you work for, or when you do a podcast and trying to get interviews, it's kind of a feast and famine. Well, last few weeks has been of the famine, now it's the feast. So expect some fascinating interviews in the, in the next few days um, on abortion in light of the Supreme Court leak, the role of baptism in communion, a look at the split in the United Methodist Church from a local pastor's viewpoint, uh, renewing congregations, and a lot more. Um, expect some of the first of these new episodes to drop in the next few days. But for now, enjoy this rewind episode of En Route. Thank you for uh, joining me uh, this afternoon, Jeff. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Dennis. Um, I've been connected to you for a long time, it seems like, but it's it's good for us to be on online here and looking forward to talking about the mainline church and talking about Jesus. Yes, definitely. So um, I think what I want to do is just start to talk a little bit about your church in Memphis, um, kind of a way of describing a little bit about what it is and um, how long you've been there. 
I am the senior minister at Lindenwood Christian Church in the middle of Midtown Memphis. We are halfway between downtown and the East Loop, so Midtown is actually quite fitting. And so it's the fourth oldest continuous worshiping community in the city of Memphis. It's been here since 1843. The first Stone Campbell Bible study goes back to like 1829. I mean, that's how far back the roots of this congregation go, pre-Civil War. And so Lindenwood Christian Church is one of the anchor institutions in the city. It's not one of the largest churches, but it is um, one of the best known churches in that it has a very visible and historic ministry. Uh, we sit on the middle, we sit on East Parkway and Union Avenue. So every time you hear this story or hear the song Walking in Memphis about Union Avenue, we're, we're mm-hmm. on Union Avenue. <laughs> um, and I've been the minister here for almost two and a half years. So I came here, the, my, uh, the first day in the office was Monday, April 1st, 2019. And so I wasn't even here a full year when COVID hit. So over mm-hmm. half my time in ministry at Lindenwood is uh, during the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's been a, it's been a challenge and a, it's been exciting in some ways after, especially after I got vaccinated, I'm like, wow, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to be able to do some fun, creative stuff. And we can talk about some of that, but yeah, yeah. It, yeah. this is a congregation that um, is, uh, has a strong history of, of worship and witness. And when I came here, uh, they probably thought their best days were behind them, and I think they're starting to believe that that's not true anymore. Well, and that is something that is quite common in mainline Protestant churches, that there's a sense of the best days were behind us, and there's an uncertainty, if not a bleak ver- uh, vision about the future. What has made Lindenwood change their viewpoint? Well, to be to be completely honest, they were in better shape than they realized. And, and to be honest, they're probably in better shape than a lot of mainline churches in that they do have a facility that gets used all the time. They do have more resources than, than some other churches that I've served or other churches in our tradition. Uh, that said, uh, they wanted to hear and believe in what God could do again. And so anything that I brought to... Um, to anything I brought to the table as the leader of this congregation was more about less, it was more about what God can do and less about, oh my goodness, we have a new minister that's going to make everything better. And so there's a, there's a lot of uh, stereotypes that I think I fit into that they were excited about. Oh, we have a, have a middle-aged straight white guy coming to lead our church. We're, we're the perfect demographic to come and, and, and bring all the young families back. And I, and I, you know, I love if young straight families come to our church, but reality is that there's a whole bunch of people in our city that don't, that don't look like me, that, that don't love like me. And I'm, I'm excited about including them in the life of the church. And so I think what has uh, allowed the church to begin to see themselves, see their future as, as something to embrace rather than to be fearful of is that we're actually starting to build a congregation that looks like the, the neighborhood that looks like the neighborhood. So in, in where we are in the middle of Midtown Memphis, I could go half a mile at most and roll into a neighborhood that has 100 or that has million dollar homes, neighborhood that has um, old bungalows that are 70 years old that people are gutting and rebuilding. You can go into some of the poorest sections of urban America and then you can find a bunch of old hippies that hate all of it, <laughs> you know, and it all just kind of blends together there in the middle of Midtown. And 
I think they've started to see that as their friend rather than their enemy. And so, you know, inclusion is, a, is like a buzzword for mainline. And and, it, and I believe in that. I, I believe in it. I practice it at every, well, this church practiced it before I got here. But what does it mean to actually say we want to be a church for um, everyone across the economic spectrum? What does it mean to say we want to be a church for um, for the people that, that make significant money? What's it mean to say we embrace people that are experiencing homelessness or um, or, or work job to job in a way that you know probably you and I can't wrap our mind around, um, and that we 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 embrace all of that with, without asterisk. And mm-hmm. so I think the church's future has been something they've embraced with excitement because they realized they didn't have to go very far to be on mission. Hmm. Well, how would you describe your church if you were to look at it compared to? the wider mainline Protestant um, tradition. How is it the same? How is it different? Well, for for us, and, and this is probably why I felt so called here, and, and that call was really confirmed, especially in that first year pre-pandemic, is that there's two things I bring to the table that I am totally committed to, and God bless our mainline communions. Uh, they usually either want one or the other. I believe in the full inclusion of gay and lesbian people in the life of the church, not in terms of they can come but pretend that you're not there. Elders, deacons, ordination, membership, I believe that sexual orientation is not in and of itself a barrier to following Jesus any more than being straight is, and I don't budge off of that. I also believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, rose from the dead, and that he is the catalyst for life now, life forever in the new creation that will come that the cross and resurrection made happen. And so I, I love that what makes this church hum um, and that they've had these divergent pieces. And I feel like we've been able to kind of begin to bring them together over the last couple of years is I don't believe in, in inclusion because it's cool. I believe in inclusion because it's biblical. And I believe in the Bible because I believe Jesus Christ is the most important event in human history. And so if you can bring together Christology and mission, I think that's actually what the world is in need of. And so, you know, we, so let me break those apart here of what makes us distinct. You can go to a rural mainline church that have uh, people with, with, with great hearts and um, that, that will help people in need and have a strong worship life. But any sense of inclusion, of racial justice, of um, doing more than uh, welcoming with a side eye gay and lesbian people, uh, that's a conversation they maybe don't want to have. And I can find my progressive friends and urban progressive congregations that are mainline that are as inclusive as I would desire for them to be, push the envelope on important issues that need to be spoken about. But you could go there three years and not hear that Jesus died to forgive people so they could have a renewed life that has no end, and that the church is God's, it seems unfortunate, but the church is God's tool in this world to bring and um, usher shalom and, and, and redemption, to be agents of redemption in this world. And I think those two things have to go hand in hand. And if you split them apart, you get a really bad civil religion on the right, or you get um, the belief that if we could just tinker the government to do the right thing, that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And both those things are false idols. And both of them are cul-de-sacs of the kingdom. 
And I think we need to get out of those cul-de-sacs, bring those two things together, because the, the building block of all of that, of vibrant churches, of, of a renewed culture, is, is what God can do in the life of broken people. And so I believe in that. I believe in what God can do in the lives of broken people, because I know what God has done in my life. And so what I think what makes us, when, when, we, when we compare and contrast our congregation to mainline churches, is that we don't apologize for our commitment to inclusion. And if you listen to me preach and didn't uh, know my audience, you would think that I am a, a soft non-denominational. I mean, like I, I say that, I mean, hopefully I have a little more robust theological nutrition for our, for the listeners. Like I love, I, I love N.T. Wright. I love Fleming Rutledge. I, I, I read Tim Keller. I know there's about 20% of it I need to throw out, but that 80% is better than anything I'm getting from my tribe. And I say that with all due respect. Um, I preach a lot of Christology, and which I think is the missing link of the mainline church, which we can get to. Well, and, and that is always fascinating for me, uh, being gay and kind of being around that grouping and tribe. And it's kind of always the, the, the desire of, you know, it would be nice if we talked about Jesus and forgiveness and the cross at some point. And it just, you know, they're right on the, on, on the part of inclusion, but as you said, it's, it, it feels sort of empty because it's, it's not linking that Christology um, together. So, which then leads me to this question is why do you think that we don't put those two things together? Why, why has that been that we have, we choose one or the other instead of seeing it as a complete package? You know, I wish I had a good answer to that. I really, I, I don't have a good answer for that. And I don't want to pretend like I can speak for those that, that you're describing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want to put my, I don't want to be one of those people that feels like I have all the answers. Like I believe what I believe. And let me tell you why everybody else is in a rut. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why that is. Mm-hmm. I just know, just, let me just, what, what my experience has been, even let me put some softer edges to that. What my experience has been is that the more I communicate the power of the gospel, the more willing people are to engage in stretching themselves to include those that are, to to include the other, is that you can't spend a year in the New Testament and believe that the mission of Jesus was to exclude people different than me that were seeking God. Mm-hmm. Um, you cannot do that. You cannot immerse yourself in the in the New Testament world, and and arrive at some of the conclusions that 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 I think we've camped out at. You can't you can't arrive on the conclusion of exclusion, and you can't re- arrive at the conclusion of of just radical pluralism. I, pluralism is the best civic value you can have. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm a non negotiable. That's a non negotiable for me. It's also really weak Christology, and you can be committed to uh, uh, you can be committed to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and that doesn't make you a bigot. And so, if I guess the closest I would come to answering your question, which I'm very hesitant to ask, why have we detached um, robust Orthodox Christology from uh, inclusion? Is that there's some really bad examples of it? That if I preach, you know, that Jesus 
um, is the way, the truth, and the life, which is a more complicated text than it's preached all the time. I get that. Um, that that somehow means I have permission to be a bad neighbor to my Muslim friends, to my Jewish friends, that it's, it's a, a, a soft breeding ground of anti-Semitism. And I, I, again, I can't spend time with Jesus and find that that is a conclusion he would lead me to. What do you think is, um, what do you think are, are some of the positives of mainline Protestantism? What, how has it been beneficial to you? How, how do you think it's been beneficial to our society? Mainline Protestantism has, mainline Protestantism has been beneficial because I, th I think it is a uniquely American experience. Um, you know, all of us kind of trace our heritage, even if it was back to Europe, like there is something distinct about being United Methodist, ELCA, um, PCUSA, even Disciples of Christ, and that we, we saw our role as people that spoke to the world. Now, at times, this is a Will Willeman quote, we leaned over to speak into the world, but we fell in. Um, but we, we fell in too much. But I th there was a time that we really did have something to say. You know, contrary to what you hear in the media, uh, Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton are the only two evangelicals to have been elected to the White House. And by evangelical, I mean they grew up in churches that preached Jesus and full immersion and um, conversion. You know, I mean, God bless all of those Episcopalian presidents that um, we, we, we've sent a lot of people to the White House. We have uh, raised up a lot of leaders that have done great things in the name of, of human rights, in the name of care for the poor. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to I'll grab the third rail here about politics, about what Mainline has done. Two Disciples of Christ presidents that, that most people can name. Mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan had a lot of problems, but he believed in human rights abroad. I mean, like, hopefully we can all say living under the Soviet Union was awful. <laughs> and he fought to bring that to an mm -hmm. end. Lyndon Johnson screwed a bunch of stuff up, but Lyndon Johnson passed the civil rights bill that we hope somewhere in combating communism and fighting for liberty at home was undergirded by that mainline Protestant ethic of universal human dignity, that we are all created in the image of God, regardless of our credo. And I think that is a distinctly mainline, um, I think that is a distinctly mainline value that has shaped our culture. Um, I think we've lost some of that voice. I think we've lost some of that theological voice more than we've lost that policy voice. Um, but that, that would be what I say is, is one of the biggest impacts that mainline Protestantism has had is that we, we, we believe in basic fundamental human dignity and want to find, even though policy is always messy, concrete ways to enact that. And why do you think that we have lost that theological voice? I'm going to, I wrote this in a D-Men paper a couple of months ago. I don't know why the idea that Paul didn't actually write Ephesians somehow means that God didn't want to break down the dividing wall. <laughs> I think, I think we have taken higher criticism to, de I think we've taken things like higher criticism and different theological views, all of which I welcome. I have bookshelves that can confirm that. But I think we've I think we've worshipped at the altar of deconstruction for too long. Mm. We all we like we're aware we all have to deconstruct our childhood faith. I want to deconstruct 
put things back together and then reignite it to be agents of God's peace in this world. And I feel like that we have reached a point where deconstruction is our highest value. That when someone comes to our church, oh my goodness, I don't have to be a hard edge Baptist anymore. That's great. That's the first step. The next step is, all right, what does it mean for me to actually follow Jesus in a, in a way that, that, that I can reimagine what that looks like? And once I've reimagined that, how do I re-engage and reignite my faith to be on mission in the world rather than simply, oh man, I'm going to get going here. Uh, oh, go right ahead. The, there, you do not get credit for being a critic only. You just don't get credit for being a critic. You don't, you don't get credit for that. And I think part of my frustration that I feel that you probably hear in my voice is of the mainline church and of those processing out of evangelicalism is that we that we get stuck. I've gotten stuck. We've but but I witness people just getting stuck that deconstructing the unhealthy components of their faith is the place they should stay rather than okay God, you have led me on this journey. You are the author of my life. How do I begin to reimagine and, and, and generate a new sense of apostolic imagination to join you in this world to put into practice the life that Jesus lived that he's calling all of us to engage in. Um, that is that is where, that's what animates me, if you can't tell, is that you don't get credit for being a critic and deconstruction is the first of five steps. But you, but like how many, you could find a thousand conferences that are just built around criticizing the church. And I think, and so here comes my punchline. I think one of the reasons the mainline church has struggled so much is we have church members that love the church more than they love the gospel. And we have ordained pastors that don't love the church. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, I guess unpack that there. What does it unpack mean for, that there for yeah. pastors not to okay. love the church? Because that I, I, there's, I, I think you you are correct. There's truth in that, but I'd love to hear a little bit more what you think. The church is a mess. Every church is a mess. We have to love the church as it is, not simply as we want it to be. For me, mm-hmm. I have to love the church as it is. The church that God has entrusted me with, the church that not some idyllic church, not some ideal flow chart, not the hip, cool church that's got every perfect policy position on social justice, but the church that has the same 90 people that are cranky, that are inflexible, um, that, that won't extend their generosity. Why did God ask you to lead these people? You have to love these people. Um was it one of those lines is that liberals love humanity, but don't always like people. I can, I can fall victim to that. You know, I love the concept, but the concrete, you got to love the church that God has placed you at. And so that for me comes back to, I say that sharp language. Most pastors don't love the church. Most pastors are, are doing everything they can with a system that does not work. I, I am pro pastor. Let me be really blunt about that. Um, but we have to love the church for what it is. And, and we have to believe that God's called us to do it. Because, man, if God didn't call you to do it, I can give you a, I can find you more effective ways to, to be an advocate for justice 
I can find you much more effective ways to bring around social change. I can find you something much more lucrative in terms of pay. And I can find you a job where you will work less, make more, and not have any of the headaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can get you a business where, where they, they thrive on change. And the church is almost the opposite of all of those things <laughs> on, on any given day. Um, I, I'm a, I am a big Will Willimon fan. And Willimon says, he always asks first-year seminary students, why, why, do you, why are you going into ministry? And, he, and, and like all Willman stories, they're all made up, and he just creates the punchline. <clears throat> but he says they, they go around, and everybody says, oh, I just love the people. I just love the people. <laughs> yes. And Willman's like, have you met these people? Have you <laughs> met these people? <laughs> you, better, you better be sent by Jesus to this place, or you will go crazy. A story he talks about that I think may actually be accurate was when he was a bishop in Alabama, he appointed a young pastor right out of seminary out into rural Alabama. And he called Bishop Willman and he's like, everybody out here is racist. And he's like, you're serving a bunch of white people in rural Alabama. What in the world did you think you were? You, you're only there because God sent you there. Nobody signs up with a master's degree to go live in the middle of nowhere, Alabama. How can you serve and love and grow these people that God has entrusted you with? And so for me, that's what it means to love the church, is to be committed to the mission of the church and be as realistic as you can about the people that God has sent you there. God has sent you to serve. And the people that were there before you showed up, they were doing what they could and what they knew best, sin and all, before I showed up. That's what it means for me to love the church. Do you think part of the issue is that we, that people have forgotten or maybe never really bought into the, the belief and concept of grace and forgiveness and redemption, all of those things that in essence, you're, I mean, even Jesus himself were dealing with the apostles. They were not the brightest people, nor necessarily the most moral, um, but yet had a relationship with them and it seems like that's something that has not been emphasized. I agree with that completely. I think most, if you go back to when the main line was at its peak, you know, post-World War II, everything's humming, Eisenhower's president, all is well. I think most mainline churches had one of two mission statements that were unspoken. Either they were a successful church for successful people, or they were a nice church for nice people. And success and nice are not the same as total depravity. <laughs> and this, this is where I want to get real hardcore. I believe, the reason I believe in the gospel is the one verifiable truth of the Christian faith is human sin. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't do more, try harder, seek justice is not a solution to the total train wreck that is human history. Human history is a train wreck. Human beings are so flawed. This is where, aside from the the wonkiness of of tulip, which is messed up, that first part, I buy into. Human beings are born face down to God, and we have a track record to prove it. Nothing straight has ever come out of the crooked timber of humanity. But we don't use that to beat people down. We use it to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, we are incomplete. We are broken. Even on my best day, I, I, get think, I get more wrong than I will ever admit. 
And this is why the gospel is good news, because grace fills in all those gaps. Grace is bigger than my story. Um, one of the things, you know, and I know we don't spend any time talking about law and gospel, law and gospel, but, but, but Paul did. You know, the law is exhausting. Doing the right thing is exhausting. You know, whenever time somebody says, I'm going to try to do my best or I'm going to make sure my motives are pure, I'm like, you're going to burn yourself out. I have no impure, I have no motives that are pure. They're all laced with sin. Even my godliest goals and aspirations for the church, I've got ego all over it. Um, and so this is why grace is a gift. It, it, it gives us the, the ability to inhale and exhale unlike anything I've ever experienced. And so it's personal, but it's also universal in that when we look at, at just a long history of tribalism, oppression, genocide, um, you name it, the long list of, of, of human tragedy that's still going on to this day. Um, try being a person of Christian faith in China. I mean, how would you like to be a gay man in Iran or Saudi Arabia? Like this is still real in spite of our own siloed corners of, of American culture. We need a God that's got the strength to lift the luggage and fix this. And that's why I believe in new creation. And I believe that there's some things only God can do. And grace is that. Do you think that there's any way or um, that mainline churches can be renewed, turned around? <laughs> um, you know, a lot of, of, of people will say that some of the decline is cultural. And I think there is some truth to that. But how do you, how could you bring about like a, a renaissance within mainline Protestant churches? You know, I do believe that there is a future for mainline church. I really do. I think the problem is we have declined as a body. Like we've all kind of sunk at once, but we're going to rise individually. I really don't believe there's a national program for the disciples or the United Methodists that we could all implement and come from the top down and bring growth to us. I think it's going to come from the bottom up. And so for mainline, for, 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 a, for a mainline church that's been around for over 40 years, let's look at it that way. And then I'm going to pivot to new church. For mainline, I think the future is own your neighborhood acknowledge the, the specific place that God has incarnated the body of Christ as a mainline church in that neighborhood and get to know your neighbors. If you don't have a relationship with your closest elementary school, do that. If you have not walked your neighborhood, not to evangelize, but to pray, just to pray for your neighbors, that is, there is power in that. And then when you don't know what to preach and you don't know what to say, man, just talk about Jesus. He's the clearest picture of God that human beings will ever have. People justify all kinds of stupid things in the name of God, but you can't really use Jesus as an example for all the stupid things that have been used to justify in the name of God. Get into your neighborhoods, care about the needs of your neighborhoods, realize that the renewal of your church is primarily a spiritual act. It's not an organizational act. You can't, you know, your new sign does not replace praying for your neighbors. You know, you 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 get you better make your property look nice, but that's not a replacement for the spiritual work. And then just focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Now, the real hope I also have for mainline churches, and this is something I've been involved in off and on for over 20 years now, 
I'm, I'm disciples of Christ, you're disciples of Christ. We've started over a thousand new churches in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And a vast majority of them are first, second generation, non-white immigrant congregations. And they do two things I love. They are so, they are, um, they care about social justice and they preach Jesus Christ like crazy. They want to feed the hungry in their neighborhood and they speak in tongues <laughs> and they, they, they care about baptizing people and they, they want to be advocates for their communities that are overlooked or, or beaten down. And I'm telling you, I have started two new churches in the suburbs. I think we should almost abandon that. We should be starting every single church that we can for non-English speaking immigrant communities. And that's our future. I, I mean, if, if I don't want to sound like I run a hedge fund here or something, but if you were to bet, a, if you were to put a hundred thousand dollars into starting one mainline progressive church in the suburbs, or taking a hundred thousand dollars and giving it to a network of Hispanic church plan, second generation Hispanic church planners, who's going to have more baptisms in the next ten years? Like we know the answer. To that. We know the answer to that. And every one of those. Um, church plants are going to start another. They they have this sense of of of, DNA, of multiplication in their DNA that they're going to start those churches. And you know, I I don't want to go off on another rant here, but you know, white mainline, we had a nice run. We're not dead, but we should not be the ones soaking up all the resources here. Mm-hmm. Anything we could do to start non-Anglo congregations is is the best stewardship of our money. It's the best stewardship of our money. And then so, a church like mine that is uh, ethnically diverse, but still predominantly white, we should be starting a new congregation. We should be taking an initiative on that to, to, to you know, we, we need more strong churches in the suburbs. I get that. But I know where you're going to get more bang for your buck and where you're going to get more disciples and where you're going to get more new churches. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to look or sound anything like our county seat disciples churches in the Midwest and in the South. And I, I think I'm fine with that. I mean, I mean to, to be blunt, I really celebrate it. I think I it might actually have been Will Willeman himself that talked about the fact that we might be seeing a kind of a reversal in, in that in many ways, white mainline people years ago would evangelize mm-hmm. um, people in different parts of the world and everything. And now those people are immigrating and they're kind of evangelizing white mainline Protestant yeah. members. and. I think yeah. you are correct in that. Mm-hmm. I know, but the, 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 the shakeup of that for institutional people like me mm-hmm. is most of these congregations, they're not going to go to the General Assembly. They're not mm-hmm. going to go to the Regional Assembly. They, they're not going to spend in four hours on Zoom for this General Assembly thing that we're doing. I, I'm glad they're trying it in August for disciples, but I'm not going. Um, and they're not going. But what they are doing is is making disciple making disciples, and that and, and I I will say this also. Can I? Do you mind if I just keep burning some bridges here? Are you oh, all right with that? Go right ahead. The biggest opposition to our ethnic churches that are thriving are our white liberals that wanted a more diverse church. They just don't speak the same theological language, and I want them to turn up the volume on it. Um, I, I, as I've coached uh, brothers and sisters that are non-Anglo, 
that, that there's this desire, there's this sense of conformity that mainline, it's like we can't help it. It's like we're, we, we, we demand um, conformity of form and rather in, in theological language and function. Um, and so basically it's like, we love that you are um, from Argentina. We love that you are from Haiti. Now, if you could just learn to lead a church and speak like all of us that went to white disciple seminaries, that would be great. And I just, I have no stomach for that. I want to sit at their feet and learn. Mm-hmm. And I want to worship the God that, that inspires them. Well, and I, we were both at the um, 2019 General Assembly for the Disciples of Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the first evening. And I can't remember who it was, but it was someone that said something, I think, really beautiful. The only problem was that they didn't use inclusive language and people went crazy and they could not mine the good from that. They were more concerned about the form. Mm-hmm. It was, they didn't do it the way that they should have done it. Yeah. We would want to do. And right. I'm, I'm kind of like, well, why, what is wrong with you people sometimes that they weren't kind of picking that up or, or learning to kind of sift what they can agree with mm-hmm. in, instead of always having to think it has to be exactly like we do it because yeah. it's not going to be. And that's just another form of fundamentalism mm-hmm. in my opinion. And I practice inclusive language to the best of my ability. It's something I believe in. And I think it's a, I think it would be a good continuing ed course for commission ministry. And it doesn't make you a bad disciple if it's not part of your embedded prayer language. Hmm. Not if we want first and second generation immigrant church plants like we say we do, which I do. So then where do you see the future for these churches in the next 20 or 30 years? I mean, the the common belief is that they're not going to be around. Mm -hmm. I don't buy that. But... What is you know, I think I think churches that worshiped 150 to 200 that really start to shrink, I think they're going to die quicker than smaller churches that have lost a few people Mm. because they have no sense of identity outside of we pay someone to preach, we pay someone to run the youth group, we pay someone to answer the phone and clean the building, and their understanding of church is much different than a, let's say a family sized church of 40 or 50 people where if they want the, the minister's a hired hand, that's not a pejorative that we I mean, you know we pay someone to preach the sermon and do our funerals, but we, we have a sense of mission independent of what the staff does for us. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to have a whole lot of bivocational pastors. I, I hope we continue to plant uh, churches that continue to look like the churches we planted for the last 20 years and receive the wide breadth of diversity in our country that we should be doing everything we can to get behind and rally re- around and support. Uh, but I think the, I think those county seat churches that just have a big building that they've neglected a little bit, that always had 150, 200 people, I think they're, I think they're in for a tough wave the next 20 years. Hmm. Do you think that's because of the, the changes in the culture? Um, I think it's in the changes in the culture, and I think it's being prepared for a world that really no longer exists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, there, I was going to wrap it up here, but there is one yeah. question that I do want to bring up because it's related, and that is seminary. Yes. Is how are mainline seminaries preparing pastors for the world as it is? Mm-hmm. Because there's a part of me that wonders, is that really happening? Or are we preparing them for something either that we want it to be or for something in the past? You know, I've really softened on my critique of seminary, to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. Um when we talk about preparing ministers for the world that is rather than the world of the past, if my seminary would have done that for me, all I would have done was soaked up seeker sensitive worship services and mm. how to reach baby boomers that um, want to sing contemporary music. Like all we would have done was prepare me for the world of 1999. And that would be just as bad in, as preparing people for the world of 1954. Um, if I, if I were Dean of a seminary, heaven forbid, this is what I'd do. I'd make the first year. I'm aware that seminary, seminary education itself has changed completely, you know, but if, if you're doing an on a residency, if you're on, if you're going to class that you're within a half hour of that kind of stuff, the first year is nothing but Bible. You are just immersing yourself in at least 24 credits of Old Testament and New Testament. And the second year is nothing but theology. I mean, we're just starting, you know, early church all the way up to the the book that just came off the presses. And you're reading all of that, theology and church history. And then in your third year, you take some kind of integrative uh, ministry program that you you get credit for and that you have classroom work for so that you're practicing evangelism uh, we don't talk about stewardship enough. Every church has money problems, and we never learn about stewardship in seminary. I guess that is the one thing I would harp on. But I think we need people um, well-versed in the faith that understand the long arc of biblical interpretation, church history, the development of theology, and, and immerse ourselves in that and the, the you know the how different is the world now than it was five years ago, let alone twenty years ago when I was in seminary, and what the world's going to look like in five years or ten years? Anybody that thinks they have an answer to that is just selling you a book or a TED talk. None of us know that, and so I would I don't want to say give up on ministry in the world because that's not true. If you want to learn how to do ministry in the world, go get on staff at a church that's doing it right, and you're not going to learn their programs. You're going to learn their philosophy. You know, people will, people have called me off and on, like, can you show me how to do this? And I'm like, I can give you the PDF that gives you the nine steps, but what you really need to know are the theological assumptions that undergird that. Those are the things that are the most important to me. Okay. Well, thank you. This has been an engaging discussion. <laughs> so, and I really, truly mean that. It's It's been good. Um, and I think... Like you, I think it there is hope for um, these churches. They have a, a wonderful heritage, um, and I'm I'm I won't say maybe somewhat optimistic that things will happen. It'll mm-hmm. it'll be a challenge, but I think it can can change. Great.
Well, Dennis, I appreciate you. I appreciate your witness. I appreciate your voice and the disciples. And um, I've, I've, you know, we've gotten to know each other better over the last several years here, but I've always mm-hmm. been an admirer of the, uh, the wide bandwidth of your thought. You know, that's, and you break a lot of stereotypes and I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Well, that's me. I tend to break people's brains by just uh, existing. <laughs> we're the, we might, we might be the last two Irving Crystal fans left in this world. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dennis. Thank you.